Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening there, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gift of Freedom. Coming to you over Block Talk Radio. I'm coming to you out of Kansas City where I am a genealogist. And we have a great show for you tonight. And my guest is Dr. William Sherrell, who is a professor emeritus from Lehman College, which is affiliated with the City University of New York City. What we're going to talk about tonight is uh, volunteers for Ethiopia, Peace Corps uh, volunteers, seeking Peace Corps volunteers for Ethiopia. Um, Dr. Sorrell is the author of five books. He is also the um, president of uh, the Emmett Till Museum in Glendora, Mississippi. And I understand that Dr. Sorrell has joined us. Good evening, Doctor. Dr. Sorrell, are you there? Hello? Okay. Yes, Dr. Sorrell. Yes. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you now. I can hear you now. Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, Welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to come in and share this information with us. Well, uh, start us out by telling our listening audience, I'm sure that some may not know, a little bit of the history of the Peace Corps. When was it started? uh, started Yeah, it started by President Kennedy in 1961. Uh, It was an effort to uh, deal with what was called the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it's an opportunity for the United States to, you know, like win friends, influence people. And so President Kennedy thought that if somehow, you know, average Americans could spend two years abroad, uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, uh, basically, you know, one-on-one with local people, that it would spread goodwill. Uh, so far, close to around 200,000 volunteers have served in the last, you know, 50-odd years. And, and I, uh, I went to Ethiopia as a recent college graduate at the age of 22 in 1963, and I was in a group of about 140 people uh, who went. And uh, mainly at that time, we were primarily education as teachers or nurses or health workers. But Peace Corps has expanded to uh, include other skills, engineering, uh, agriculture, community development programs, and so forth. Uh, it's all over the world. It's uh, in the Caribbean, not every country, but it's in the Caribbean. It's, it's, in, it's in 
uh, Africa, uh, Latin America, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Asia, Pacific Islands. When you went into the Peace Corps, um, how many blacks were involved in the Peace Corps at that time? Uh, not very many in terms of volunteers. In my group, about 140. We only had about nine. And nine today, blacks out of uh, 140? Yeah, in my training program. Uh, today, mm-hmm. though, the Peace Corps, uh, they they classify minorities, uh, you know, like African Americans, Latinos, uh, Asians, etc., uh, make up about 24% of all the volunteers right now. How did the, What was the attraction for you as a young black man back in the early oh, 60s? Oh, well, 60s uh, yeah, well, it was 1963. Uh, you, you had, you had the, uh, a number of recent uh, independence uh, movements in Africa where you had countries like Ghana and Nigeria and the Congo, you know, Kenya and so forth just received independence. And so here in this country, there was that kind of interest in what we call Pan-Africanism. And uh, I just got out of college. Well, actually, my senior year in college in 1962, there was a World's Fair in Seattle where I grew up. And there was a Peace Corps uh, pavilion at the World's Fair, and they had a poster showing a young Peace Corps volunteer surrounded by young children. And it was something about the poster that really inspired me to say, I want to go into the Peace Corps. So I applied, I got accepted, and uh, went off to Ethiopia. Uh, okay, for me, it was, for a great, of, it was a great experience. Okay, and for some of our younger listeners, uh, let them know what was going on back in 63 in terms of the black well, power movement. Well, you had the civil rights movement at this time. Uh, you had in 1960... Uh, sit-in movement where people sat in lunch counters and other places where they were segregated to you know, demand service. And then you had what they called the Freedom Rise. Uh, people were taking buses, Greyhound or Trailway buses down to uh, Deep South to integrate the bus facilities, the terminals. And then certainly uh, by the time I left, they had to march on Washington just before I arrived. In, in fact, I arrived in Ethiopia about two weeks after the uh, nice. 1963 March on Washington, where Dr. King gave that famous speech, I Have a Dream. And where did you say you grew up? I grew up in Seattle. In Seattle, Washington. Right, way out west. (laughs) Okay, way out west. Um, Now, there's a a drive on now for recruiting um, in the Peace Corps for volunteers to go to Ethiopia. What's going well, on? For, for all uh, over. I mean, for all over. Ethiopia right now, it's a small group. They are primarily dealing with HIV-AIDS projects. And it's a lot smaller now as a group than it was when I was there. Uh, basically, the Peace Corps is a lot smaller now than it was in the 60s, at least in terms of the number of volunteers in a particular country. Uh, to some degree, it's more specialized uh, there are jobs that we had back in the 60s that uh, Peace Corps doesn't do anymore uh, because you get you get local people who can handle those those kinds of uh, uh, projects or programs. But it's diverse, though. I mean, there are people who are in their 50s and 60s uh, in the Peace Corps. As long as you're age 18 and an American <clears throat> citizen, uh, one is eligible. And, again, it depends on skills. I mean, people are matched based on their skills and experiences. Uh, the average age for the Peace Corps right now is about 27, and it's about okay. 60% female. 
when you were doing your tour in Ethiopia, uh, what did you learn? What surprised you? And what myths well, got well, at that time, see again, see again, for those who are too young to know, at that time, there was so much segregation here in the United States that there were a lot of occupations that were denied people of, um, uh, of African descent. And so what surprised me was to see Ethiopians as bankers, you know, uh, airline uh, uh, hostesses, uh, airline pilots, uh, you know, operating hotels, uh, things that today were more commonly seen, but not at that time in the early 60s here in the United States. But uh, what really uh, touched me was to see uh, uh, ancient kingdoms. Uh, they had two, uh, Aksum, in the northern part, which wasn't very far from where I lived, and and Aksum was a, a ancient capital, uh, is best known today for obelisk. They have very large obelisk that were erected over a thousand years ago. The biggest one was taken by the Italians when they invaded the country in 1935, and they kept it until about two years ago. And then also, okay. I went to a place called uh, La Libella, where they have churches carved out of rock. Uh, along the mountainside. Uh, most of Ethiopia is very, very uh, mountainous highlands. And Lalibela was an area where they had carved these churches out, out of the mountainside about a thousand years ago. You know, considering the engineering speed, it's, it's fairly amazing. And uh, it showed me the civilizations that I never heard of. So it, it really inspired me to think more about uh, learning about history of Africa and certainly later on uh, history of African Americans, which became my specialty. And uh, do you think you would ever live there? And why didn't you remain in Ethiopia? Sounds like it was a pretty uh, Well, experience. I mean, I lived there for two years. I was very young at the time. I was 22, and I came back when I was 24. And I, I wanted to go back, you know, continue my uh, further education for graduate school. Uh, there, there are people who live there. I mean, when I was there, I met some Americans who, who came in the, uh, uh, like, in the 1940s after the end of World War II. Uh, there are Americans and Jamaicans who have an area in southern Ethiopia that was given to them by Haile Selassie, the emperor, it's for uh, the Rastas, Rastafarians. Mm-hmm. So there are some who have migrated, and that's, that's their home today. And what were you planning to major in before you decided to change your major? Well, I didn't change my major exactly. Uh, an undergraduate for a bachelor's degree, I was majoring in social science and the combination of history and geography and you know, political science and economics. And so when I came back, I went for, for a master's uh, teaching of history. And then later I went for a PhD in, in American history uh, Although I, I taught and I write in African-American history, but at that time, I received my doctorate in 1977. They weren't offering courses for, for a uh, Ph.D. in, in um, African-American history, so I took it in American history. Okay. You know, a couple of times we mentioned, uh, you mentioned Italy invading Ethiopia, and you mentioned World War II. Uh, talk to us uh, a little bit about... Uh, during World War II, when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, a lot of Harlem sure. residents turned out to volunteer to go to Ethiopian fight. Yes. Uh, yes. Tell us a well, little bit about was, that history. Sure. See, uh, uh, Ethiopia was was uh, basically the only country in Africa that never got colonized. 
it uh, was because of this mountainous terrain, it was, it was hard to reach. Uh, the, uh, the Italians had an area called Eritrea, just north of Ethiopia, and then they had Somalia to the, to the south uh, east of Ethiopia. And so Ethiopia was independent. In fact, Ethiopia had defeated the Italians in a battle called the Battle of Ottawa in 1896 because the Italians were trying to come in from Eritrea to to uh, take over Ethiopia and that failed. So that was a major defeat of a you know, European power. And it was something that really perturbed Mussolini. And so later on in 1935, in order to try to regain the lost glory of the Roman Empire, he uh, decided to have an invasion. So they came down, they took over Ethiopia, but it only lasted until 1941, because okay. at that time the, the British the British were able to drive the Italians out of Ethiopia. When I was there, there were still some Italians who had lived. Uh, Eritrea at that time was part of Ethiopia, today's independent country. So um, uh, Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, still had some Italians, you know, uh, shopkeepers and and um, you know, homeowners and so forth who were from that group that came many years earlier. Okay, and you also mentioned uh, Rastafari, Hala Selassie. Let's go into a little bit more detail on that. Hala um, uh, Selassie, whose name was Rastafari. And yeah, well, well some yeah, of the, the word playing. Sure. The well, High Selassie uh, claims the lineage going back to Menelik, who was the son of supposedly of King Solomon from Israel and Queen of Sheba, and that's that's part of their of their um, you know historical um, lore. He his name Ras in Amharic the language means prince. So Ras Tafari was basically Prince Tafari, and then once he became emperor, he, he chose the name Haile Selassie. Haile means power, and Selassie means trinity, like the Holy Trinity. So okay. Haile Selassie means power of the trinity. And uh, when Marcus Garvey, you know, the Bible talks about uh, Ethiopia stretching forth her hands unto God. And yeah. when Marcus Garvey was here in the United States in the 1920s, uh, he talked about a Prince coming from the east. So later on, those who became known as Rastafarians, you know, believed that was the the prophecy of the Bible. And so, High Selassie became revered by uh, by the, his followers, people who called themselves the Rastafarians. And that's the reason why they they were given some property in southern Ethiopia by the emperor, you know, about 40 years ago. And and they they have a small colony that. Uh, resides there today. I, 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 I met the emperor. I met Haile Selassie. I met him in September 1963. We had a reception for the Peace Corps volunteers. Yeah. So I, I met him, and I, I knew his. Uh, I knew one of his granddaughters. She was married to the governor of the province where I resided. Wow. What's the uh, relationship between Ethiopia and Egypt? Oh well. I mean, they're, they're not that far apart. Uh, uh, one of the problems they have today is the issue of water because Ethiopia is a source of the Blue Nile. You have the Blue Nile and you have the White Nile, which meets in, uh, in Khartoum in Sudan. And the Nile flows northward. It doesn't flow southward. 
And so a lot of the water that goes to Egypt comes out of Ethiopia, and Ethiopia now is building dams. Uh, Ethiopia has the potential, even 50 years ago, they had the potential of feeding all of Africa. Yeah. The problem they have with, with a question of rainfall, because the only rains there are about twice a year for about 10 days in May and then about three weeks in September. And so you have periods of you know, droughts, and which caused a lot of the famine some years ago. So today they are constructing dams, and that's a political issue because Egypt is you know, concerned about the amount of water that may, may or may not come to Egypt because when you have a dam, you can control the flow of water. So that's a political issue between those two countries. And um, you mentioned that you met um, Holly Selassie's granddaughter. Um, yes. We sure like to get her on the show. I don't even know where she is now. I don't even know if she's still alive by now because I met her in 1963, and I would think at that time she was probably in her 40s. She was married to Nagesha Siun, who was the governor of the province. Unless I heard he was in Virginia, but he too is probably uh, somewhere in his high high 80s now because he... Uh, was sent into exile once the High uh, Selassie was overthrown and the Marxist government took over Ethiopia and he was you know, subjected to potential persecution. So he, so he left the country. Otherwise, you know he, he, probably, he probably would have been executed. Hmm? Did they have any children? Uh, they do. I don't know where they are either. I, I have a photograph in my home. Uh, I took of Haile Selassie with his great-grandsons in 1965. Uh, and that year, uh, he and Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were at a church in Aksum to have a dedication. And there was no security at that time, and no one bothered me. I had a camera, and yeah. I had a jacket and tie, and, and there were some British photographers. So I just walk around with the British photographers and standing 15, 20 feet away from Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and took photographs. I have a photograph that I framed showing the emperor with, with six or seven of his uh, great-grandsons. Wow. Are you a Pan-African? Am I Pan-Africanist? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I believe in supporting African issues and, and causes. And, again, that was something that I got exposed to by being in Africa and seeing again, the, you know, the ancient civilizations that existed and then learning about uh, more and more about Ethiopian history and then later on uh, African history and, you know, learning about those kinds of connections, you know, certainly. Okay. Um, well, explain to us um, your ideas about the movement of Pan-Africanism, what it is well, and... Sure. Well, Pan-Africanism, is, it goes back to the 19th century, and there are a number of people, I mean, there are books about the subject. I've written about it, too, in some of my writings. Uh, I mean, there are people who believe in, in uh, we call it the unity of African people throughout the world, Caribbean, Africa, uh, you know, United States, wherever African people reside, and, uh, you know, like economic cooperation, uh, you know, cultural identity. See, one of the things about Pan-Africanism is that uh, we learn from Africa and Africa learn from us. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly this was true during the 1950s and 60s when we here were struggling to desegregate facilities here, and we saw that at the same time many people in Africa were striving towards independence, and they achieved their independence just about the same time that the civil rights movement took a lot of momentum. And so they learned from us. They, they got inspired by what we were trying to do at that time, and, and same with us. We got inspired by what they we're doing. So, I mean, being in the Peace Corps, is, is, for me, was an extension of Pan-Africanism, because here I was, you know, a young person going to Africa to do what I could to help them in, in their nation building, because at, at that time, uh, most teachers in the public schools in Ethiopia were either people from India who were there on contracts, or they were American Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, there were very few mm-hmm. Ethiopians who were teaching uh, beyond the subject of Amharic, the, the language, are teaching uh, physical education. So, and, and the students all learn in English. Uh, I taught in English. And so the, the teachers doing math or history, I taught, I taught European history and world geography, and some volunteers taught math, some taught biology, some taught English, and so forth. But that was done either by Americans or by, by Indians. And so in my case, being a you know, young person from America, I could help them to understand more about civil rights movement as it was going on at that time. And then I could look at them and learn something from their history as well. So it, it was a mutual beneficial thing. Uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, kidnapping of those 234 girls there? And, uh, any well, thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, it's something that's, extremely relevant because because uh, one of the biggest problems is education of, of women and girls. Uh, they say if you educate girls, then you change the nation because women, as we know, are, are pretty productive and proactive about a lot of things. And when I was in Ethiopia, one thing you noticed was the, <clears throat> the, the older or the longer uh, children were in school, the fewer girls you, you would see. So, for example, if you're to walk into a class and it's third graders or fourth graders and you had, say, 50 students in the class, you might have 25, 30 girls. But by the time it was, say, ninth, 10th, or 11th grade, out of 40 students, you might have about eight or nine girls. Uh, partly the reason is because girls are expected to do a lot of housework. And particularly if you have a situation where girls have to go and gather water or get wood, because some people oh, yeah. didn't have, have uh, you know, they didn't have regular stoves or furnaces, so they would gather wood and they used the wood to to heat water or cook over. And so you got to go out and you know maybe go in the radius of a mile or a half a mile, just gathering straight pieces of wood, or go a half a mile or so and carry water in jugs. And it takes time away from the education. Exactly. So what's going on in Nigeria is just some extremists who don't want girls to be educated. They want them to stay home and the so-called traditional girls just having babies and taking care of the family that way, as opposed to going to school and learning science and math and the things that are needed for society to make advancements. Exactly. And those trips for water, that might require five or six trips a day. Yeah, it does. And water is very heavy. If anyone ever carried a supermarket shopping and you know, bought a, a gallon of water, and the water can get really heavy. And, yeah, you see uh, 
see the young girls with big water jugs on their backs, and they're some are very young, like seven, eight years of age. But mm-hmm. being in the Peace Corps, I mean, you get exposed to a lot of things, and you certainly learn to appreciate uh, maybe some of the nice things that we have today. Uh, see, where I live, I live in the northern part of Ethiopia. I live in a town that was the capital of a province, and we only had electricity from 6 o'clock to midnight. And uh, uh, my house had hot water, but only for maybe 20 minutes at a time because uh, there was a small stove that we could burn charcoal in, and that would heat the, the pipe. So you have water for about 20 minutes, hot water to take a shower, but otherwise you just couldn't turn on the tap and, and get hot water. So I, I had hot water, but some of the volunteers across the street from me didn't have hot water at all. Uh, some volunteers, depending on where they live, didn't have electricity. Uh, it, it varied because you had, you had some people who, who live in nice accommodations with marble floors, uh, like, like a villa. It all depends on locations. So in Peace Corps, I mean, it, it teaches people to, to to make adjustments and to uh, begin to understand that you don't necessarily need all the nice things that we have in society to be a happy person. Uh, I was speaking to someone um, who came from, she was in Peace Corps in Guinea in West Africa, uh, 2007 to 2009, and she, she lived in a, in a mud hut and had no electricity and no hot water. And she did mm-hmm. this for 27 months, but you know, you, it, we're we're adaptable people, and it's not that hard to learn to accept you know those kinds of conditions. Uh, I'd like to tell people who are listening you know, about the Peace Corps in terms of uh, ways to apply for the Peace Corps. Okay, yeah, let me ask you this Corps. before we get to that. Let me ask you a okay. couple more questions before we get there. We sure. definitely want to get that information okay. out. How does the Peace Corps provide for the safety? of their volunteer. And the second part of this, I want to go back to the incident with the girls. And how do you think that incident affects the myth that chattel slavery was started by Africans selling one another? And what would you okay. say to scholars that might believe that? Okay, well, and then we'll the get to the other safety, Sure. Well, the thing first about safety and Peace Corps volunteers, uh, uh, volunteers don't go anywhere where Peace Corps doesn't think is safe. I mean, there have been times when Peace Corps has been pulled out of countries. I mean, volunteers were pulled out of Ethiopia after the emperor was overthrown in, in the early 1970s for security reasons. Uh, Peace Corps is in, is in the Ukraine, and I don't know if volunteers have been pulled out or shifted or not because of the unrest in the Ukraine. So Peace Corps is always concerned about personal safety and the volunteers today, uh, every volunteer has a cell phone uh, just for ability to communicate quickly uh, with somebody. And in every country where Peace Corps is, they have a security or safety director, someone on mm-hmm. staff who can uh, keep in touch, you know, emailing or uh, cell phones in case there's, you know, minor crises or major crises. So volunteers are aware for their own personal safety. Uh, the other part of your question, um, slavery is ancient and it's, it's practiced in, in, in basically all uh, societies. Uh, we hear about it in, in the Bible. The the thing in, in Africa, there was a type of slavery, uh, not what we call chattel, chattel slavery is in, in the United States where 
people who are denied basic rights, like right to get married, and you know the, the right the, the right to uh, to have personal safety and, and so forth. So, what happened more in in Africa would be a type of uh, servitude, where say uh, uh, an ethnic group might have war with another ethnic group, and then they take whoever the captives are and, and make them into a type of a servant. And that was something that was fairly common. Um, so that's a, a very brief answer. But certainly what happened here in the Americas was, was unlike anything that happened in Africa. I mean, what happened here was, was you know, degrading the human spirit and the human body. Exactly. Now, uh, talk to us about some of these, uh, the way to get into the Peace Corps for some of these okay, well, uh, peace, youngsters peace ready to graduate. Yeah. Well, the best thing to do is um, uh, those in the New York tri-state area, uh, there's a, a Peace Corps office downtown in New York at uh, 201 Varick, it's V-A-R-I-C-K, and that's uh, New York 10014 and Suite 1025. Uh, that's the Peace Corps office here. Uh, there's a phone number to reach them to. It's 212 Three five two five four four zero. The thing is, uh, it's always best to speak to someone from the Peace Corps as a recruiter. I, I'm not a Peace Corps recruiter. I'm just someone who served in the Peace Corps and tried to encourage people to do the same. But the recruiters can answer all kinds of questions. Uh, basically, one should apply at least a year before uh, one is thinking about going to the Peace Corps. Okay. It takes time to do time takes time to do background checks. Um, person needs to have medical records and like dental records. And then two, let's say someone is thinking about joining the Peace Corps right now and they may be a sophomore or a junior in college. If they contact the Peace Corps now and then the Peace Corps can say, Well, let's check your major, let's check what skills you might have and then they can say, uh, here's one, two, three or four or five countries where your skills uh, match what the country needs. And then you have choices. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Peace Corps, as I said, it's in Africa, it's in uh, South America, it's in Asia, it's in Eastern Europe, it's in China, it, it's, it's in the Caribbean. It's not, not in every single country, but the countries that have needs, and Peace Corps can match those needs. And so once someone applies, there's you know, background checks, there's uh, time to consider uh, your skills, how do they match. And certainly it has to be somebody who's looking in for a venture and someone who's somewhat independent. Uh, there's no point joining the Peace Corps if you're the kind of person who has to talk, to, say, to your mother or your father every week. Because those opportunities are not going to be that available. Or you have to chat you know, with your best friends you know, every day. <laughs> It's just not available. But if you're the kind of person looking to for personal growth, uh, travel experience. Excuse me, uh, Dr. Farrell. I believe we have a caller on the line. Okay. Um, caller, do you have any questions or comments for our guest? Are you there, caller? Hello? Yes, caller. 
Yes, hi. Um, I'm really hi. enjoying this conversation. Um, I, I, you know, just can you explain, Dr. Terrell, um, I know that there have been people who have these perceptions that the Peace Corps is the CIA. Can you please uh, clarify about that? Well, it's not. Uh, I mean, I've heard that rumor going back even by the time when I was serving. No, uh, it's very clear the Peace Corps has nothing to do with the CIA and Peace Corps would not accept any volunteers who formally serve in the CIA or the intelligence uh, agencies. Uh, they want to make make a clear division between you know, CIA and what the Peace Corps does. Peace Corps is basically dealing with people to people mm-hmm. and to help those in those countries that have, have needs, regardless of what the needs may be. And as a result... Uh, uh, you find that a lot of people going to the Peace Corps, they really, imp- they really uh, uh, show the concept behind peace. Mm-hmm. When, when I was serving uh, during the time, the beginning of the Vietnam War, and there were a lot of volunteers who were protesting the Vietnam War because they really were committed to the concept of peace as opposed to the CIA, which is you know, getting into checking into people and investigating and, and trying to commit, you know, various types of sabotage and, and so forth. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Where, where else can we hear about the Peace Corps? Um, well, I, I was in the, actually yesterday I was on a program, uh, Cultural Caravan TV Productions, which is on Channel 25 or Channel 22 in the tri-state area. And I was speaking with, with the uh, the representative from the Peace Corps for recruitment, Sierra Johnson, and actually next week uh, on Wednesday next week on June fourth on the same channels twenty five and twenty two at four thirty in the afternoon, uh, I and another colleague Floyd Davis who was in the Peace Corps with me in Ethiopia, uh, we also are going to be on the same program, Cultural Caravan TV Productions, and mm-hmm. we're both talking about our own experiences. Uh, we were in different parts of the country, even though we were volunteers at the very same time. Uh, we had similar, but also we had dissimilar experiences because of the geographical differences in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's that's next week on, on uh, June 4th at 4.30, Channel 25, Channel 22, for those who have cable television. Wow. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Sure. Thank, Thank you. you, Carla. Do we have any other callers on the line? Okay. Um, you mentioned um, earlier about Marcus Garvey, uh, who was a Pan-Africanist. And sure. who else was involved in that movement of Pan-Africanism? Oh, well, it depends on what you time period. With, uh, John Henry Clark, I'm thinking of. Yeah, I, I knew John Henry Clark. He he lived uh, actually he lived a block from where I live in Harlem. Yeah, yeah that was my question. Yeah. Did you know him? Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, I knew him. Yes, yes. What can you tell yeah. us about him? Oh, John Henry Clark was was uh, one who studied a lot about uh, African history, uh, and you know, turn see again. See, history is is an interpretation of what happened, and there's a lot of misinformation about history in terms of how people tell a story, and you know, there was a time when uh, Africans supposedly had no history. When I was in college, and since I graduated in 1963, 
uh, hardly anybody was really talking about African culture, African civilizations, or African achievements. So someone like John Henry Clark and, and other pioneers before him were saying, yes, Africa had history and were putting this history out through lectures and, you know, books and, you know, events in the community. So John Henry Clark was, was one who was doing this. Uh, he did his on a college level as well as in a community level. Uh, even before that, back in the 19th century, there were people. I wrote about some of them in, in, uh, in one of my books, uh, Bruce Fritt, the uh, Black Nationalist Writings of John Everett Bruce. People in the late 19th century, like Alexander Cromwell and uh, Edward Wilmot Blyden and, and um, Bruce and Arthur Schoenberg and others who were saying, look towards Africa because Africa had developed a culture, a civilization, and there are many things that we think are European had an origin uh, in Africa. And see, again, that's why my experience in Ethiopia was very revealing because at, prior to that time, I had no knowledge really of African studies, African history, and being exposed to Aksum and Lali Bella made me think, how come I don't know these things? And that really encouraged me to go to the library when I came back home to start doing that research on my own, uh, which I did because even though I have a master's and a doctorate, I, I, I never had a course really that dealt with African or African-American history. It's something that I learned on my own by going to the library, okay. the Schoenberg Library and, and uh, other libraries in New York and Actually, let, me, let me interrupt one more time here, Doctor. The lines are open. Uh, I see that we have a caller. Do you have something sure. to say, caller? Question or comment? Are you there, caller? Okay. Okay, apparently our caller is not on the line uh, right now. Um and it's about time for us to uh, to round this up, and I promise I wouldn't have you on very long. And uh, we're approaching that time. Uh, before we go, though, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the uh, Emmett Steel Museum there in Glendora. Um, oh, sure. Um, yeah, a couple. Of, yeah, Glendora is a very small, actually, the village, around 300 people in the Mississippi Delta. And it's the area where Emmett Till's body was, uh, where he was killed in uh, that area. Um, there's a museum now, <clears throat> Emmett, Timmett, Emmett Till Museum. And I went down there, uh, it's not quite two years ago, and, and I met the mayor and townspeople. And I uh, was asked to be chair of an advisory committee to help promote the museum and also promote the town. Uh, the town's trying to do economic development. Uh, this coming September, on September the 23rd, uh, there's a symposium in Jackson, Mississippi that will be devoted to the Emmett Till Museum where we'll have mm -hmm. uh, my, myself and some other people speaking about Mississippi's history, uh, about Mississippi's future. So right now, that's in the planning stages. Okay. But uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, the Emmett Till area, <clears throat> Mississippi is very good about historical markers. They they have they have a marker at the store which still stands, although it's burnt out, where he had an encounter with the woman who said that he flirted with her. The historical monument 
a marker right there, and then there's a historical marker uh, <clears throat> where he was killed, and there's a historical marker where they found his body uh, by the bayou, and then there's a historical marker where the courthouse was where they had a trial of two men who were acquitted of the murder, even though later on they did tell a reporter that they, yes, they killed him and they explained why. So okay. his, Mississippi is good about at least putting history up front where people can see it. And Mississippi is going to have a civil rights museum uh, should be opening up in a few months. And tell our, our listeners, particularly our younger listeners, where was he from? How old was he? Uh, uh, he, he was what happened uh, he on was the only, cover of Death Magazine. Yeah, he, he was. Uh, he and I are the same age. Uh, I was 14 in 1955, and and he was 14. So that's why I was really struck when I read about it as a young person myself that someone my age was murdered that way. He um, lived in Chicago, and he came down to Mississippi to visit relatives. And perhaps he didn't understand the you know the ways of the South in the 1950s. Uh, either he whistled or he said something inappropriate to a white uh, married woman in a store, something that if he had said in Chicago, people would just say, oh, go away, young boy. But regardless of what he said or what he did, <laughs> the husband and the brother-in-law uh, killed him. But he became, uh, uh, to, to a degree, became like a catalyst for the civil rights movement because this was before Rosa Parks and her, her refusal to... Um, to sit in a segregated section of the bus. And um, it was a catalyst because it was international news. Uh, as a historian, I did some research into this, and all over the world there were headlines about the murder and, and about the acquittal. And so it, it, it galvanized and it motivated people in Mississippi and throughout the country to do something about what was called Jim Crow, you know, racial segregation. And so and Jet Magazine, about, Jet Magazine, on it. Uh, when, when his, his body was found by accident, because I saw the spot where his body was found, uh, you have a bayou, and the bayou goes into the Tallahassee River, but just before the bayou went into the river, his body got snagged on some branches. Uh, otherwise, he would have floated, and he never probably would have found him. And so his body was discovered, and his mother in Chicago decided to have an open casket. She said she wanted the world to see what they did to her son. Now, by this time, his body is all disfigured. His face is all bloated and <clears throat> because he got shot in the head and he's in the water for a little bit. So it's a very uh, uh, unpleasant, very grotesque uh, visual scene, but it was one that again, galvanize a lot of people to say we have to stop this kind of atrocities that's going on in Mississippi. The um, <clears throat> the museum is a replica of the store where he had the encounter. Oh, and Glendora yeah. is in the Delta. It's about two hours south of Memphis. Uh, if anybody goes to Memphis, they have the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated. And about two hours south in Glendora, Glendora is an area that was part of the civil rights movement because it's an area of, at that time, it had a lot of cotton plantations. And and uh, <clears throat> today, there's very little of uh, that kind of agriculture because 
Uh, you don't need people so much as you did back in the 40s and the 50s. So today, a lot of everything is mechanized with machinery. So there's a lot of poverty still in the Delta. And um, talk to us about your books and where they're available and the titles. Well, and, I, have, uh, I wrote five books. Uh, uh, basically, only two are still in print. Uh, the two in print I can talk about, uh, the one I mentioned earlier, John uh, Bruce Gridge, the black nationalist writings of John Edward Bruce. <coughs> Excuse me, Bruce was born in 1856 in Maryland into slavery and was you know, free once the Civil War started. And he was, he was a journalist who wrote for over 100 newspapers uh, a black nationalist, Pan-Africanist. He was very close friends with Arthur Schoenberg. Uh, he's famous for uh, a number of things, but uh, what I like about him was he, he was one of the early pioneers in what we call studies, African-American studies, because he, he, he understood that Africa had a culture and had a civilization, had a history that should be told. So in 1911, he and Arthur Schoenberg in Yonkers, New York, uh, started what was called the Negro Society for Historical Research to have scholars uh, give lectures, you know, write papers, pamphlets, and so forth to tell the world that Africa had a history that should be told to everybody. And he, uh, being close friends with Arthur Schoenberg, uh, when Bruce died in 1924, his papers, like all his writings, letters, correspondence, and so forth, newspaper clippings, uh, they all end up in the Schoenberg Library for Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture. And fortunately, um, they were preserved, so I was able to go to the Schoenberg Center to do my research and gather enough information to, to write this book about him. And I always tell people it's really important to preserve our history. And exactly. we think too often that uh, things may not be important, but... Uh, everything is relevant to a historian, even though it may not be relevant to somebody else. And uh, even things like uh, uh, the menus and restaurants, <laughs> because certainly today people want to know uh, what did people eat and what did it cost. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why, and that's that's the reason why sometimes you see a play or a movie, and you see how people are dressed. They dress in a certain time period. Because someone went to a research library and they, they found catalogs or newspaper advertisements showing how someone dressed, you know, in 1880 or, or uh, what people ate in the restaurant. Is your, uh, so is your book available? Yes, the Bruce Gritt book, it's, you can get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble uh, online. Uh, Bruce okay. Gribb was published by the University of Tennessee Press. Uh, my last book was called Angels of Mercy, White Women and the History of New York's Arson Asylum, uh, which was started back in 1836 by some Quakers. And its existence of 1946 as an orphanage. And uh, today it, it exists as the uh, institution for family services called Harlem Dowling. Westside Center for Children and Families, and uh, what it is, a social work type organization. Uh, at that time in the 19th century, uh, because of racism, 
uh, children of color could not go to an orphanage that, that had white children. And so these Quaker women decided on their own with, with financial support from family and later the public to have a building that would house these children. About 15,000 15, of the children were in the orphanage from 1836 to 1946. Uh, that was published wow. by Fordham University Press. Okay. And it's available again, again Barnes and Noble uh, dot com and Amazon dot com uh, have those books available. If you go under my name, William Sorrell, S E R A I L E, uh, you see those listed. The other books are out of print, but there are uh, copies in used bookstores. But if you go yeah. under my name, under my name, you'll see all five books that are listed. Exactly. I found one today, in fact, uh, Fire in His Heart, Bishop Benjamin yes. Tucker Tanner in the AME Church. Uh, contact information, Doctor. How would our listeners get a hold of you if they want to answer uh, well, questions or inquiries? Yeah, just yeah, through email. Uh, email is wsorrell at yahoo.com. So it's W for William, S-E-R-A-I-L-E at yahoo.com. And anybody care to, uh, to uh, email me, certainly I would email you back. Okay. And do you have any parting words for us, anything you want to leave well, us with? Uh, yeah, my parting words, I always tell people to preserve our history, uh, to save things. Uh, for example, photographs. Uh, the Schellenberg Center for Research in Black Culture has a photography uh, collection. And anytime you see a documentary that deals with African-American history, uh, you usually see the Schoenberg listed in the credits because oftentimes there are photographs taken from the Schoenberg that are used in the documentary. When I write my books, I have photographs from the Schoenberg. Uh, also, people might have in their homes uh, uh, other kinds of documents, uh, whether the church, like church programs, church documents, uh, family correspondence. See, the thing is people think that maybe they themselves are not really that important, so why bother? But historians will look at things and learn from what people say, and that's how we can tell the story of the of the past. Let me just give you a, a quick example. I, uh, in, in, in some of my writings, I would look at correspondence, uh, letters that people would send to other folks, and then they, they kept copies for themselves, which is fairly common back then. And as a result, you can get a sense of what someone is thinking about a certain incident or event in their lives uh, may not appear to be relevant, but then in a the, in the bigger context, it becomes relevant. If you have someone, for example, who was in, say, Harlem in 1935 when there was a riot and you know, a lot of destruction in the streets, and they're writing about what they saw, uh, they're telling us history. And so 40, 50 years later, a historian like myself can look at that letter and say, oh, I wasn't aware that this took place like this. So it gives right. us you know, greater insights into, into what happened. And then some people kept diaries, and the diaries, too, are revealing personal information that may not be publicized elsewhere, but it helps to tell a, a, a larger story. And just like this program right now on the radio, you and I are talking, and if someone's taping this and they say, oh, I wasn't aware of this, 
and then it becomes part of a collection, a collection that someone in later years can look at, and then that would give them uh, more insights into to what, what we thought was relevant in the year 2014. Great. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Uh, William Sherrell, taking time out of your busy schedule. And uh, with all this information you've given us, I'm sure we're going to have to have you back. Uh, well, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here. So certainly, yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. And certainly, certainly, if anyone wants to contact me, go ahead, and I'll certainly get back to you. Okay. Thank you so much, right, thank Doctor, you. and good night. Sure. Okay. Okay. okay, good night. Bye. Good night. And I want to remind our audience that this show is taped. It is available for free via iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Our producer is Leslie Gist, that's G-I-S-T. And if you have an idea for a show or questions, you can reach her at leslie at thegiftoffreedom.com. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. I'm located here in Kansas City, Missouri, and it's been a pleasure uh, talking with our guests and having you as listeners, and I thank all our callers. Good night, everybody.